0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts.
1: From KYW News Radio 1039
2: FM, this is Flashpoint, shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program, Organ Donors Save Lives.
3: I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee and this week on Flashpoint, we're asking the burning questions and imagining what a gun violence state of emergency would look like for Philadelphia.
4: Black and brown people in Philadelphia deserve to have safe neighborhoods and we deserve to have prevention and intervention treated just as seriously.
3: Our newsmaker of the week is a little person making a big splash with his lemonade.
2: There's a lot of rich business owners out there that I want to kind of be like. And after our changemaker of
3: the week turned his own life around, he's helping others to do the same by training them to become barbers.
1: You got to tell them right from wrong. You got to let them know your past. You got to let them know that there's a brighter future out here.
3: It's a half hour you need to hear straight ahead on Flashpoint.
5: The mayor has consistently uh, defended his decision to not declare a gun violence emergency. And he says in part that this is, quote, not a solution that will change conditions in Philadelphia, yet there are some advocates who are still calling for this urgent action. So today I want us to explore what would a gun violence emergency mean for the city and what would it look like? Here to discuss with us on Flashpoint, we have Councilmember Jamie Gattier. She represents much of West Philadelphia, which has been overwhelmingly affected by the gun violence crisis. We also have Adam Garber, who is executive director of Ceasefire PA. Thank you both for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank you for having me.
3: Councilmember, you've really been at the forefront of urging the mayor to declare a gun violence emergency, but I know there have been a number of updates recently. So what is your position on the gun violence emergency now?
4: As most Philadelphians believe, I think that gun violence is an emergency situation in Philadelphia. And as such, demands an emergency response. I was never caught up on just declaring an emergency. I represent a district where there's continuous violence. It would be nonsensical for me to just ask for an emergency just for the sake of calling it that. I've always been asking for an emergency response. That is what we need to do in this moment. We need to devote the resources of our city towards the neighborhoods most experiencing this violence on a consistent basis.
5: Thank you for setting us straight on that. Adam, your organization explores solutions to gun violence. Now, in your opinion, what are city officials not doing and how would a gun violence emergency potentially affect that?
6: Well, look, we are clearly in an emergency when people can't sit on their stoop or go to the park or go to a restaurant without getting shot. I think for us, the emergency does a few different things. First, it sends a clear signal that the city is taking this as seriously as possible, which we've seen in the past that words matter and declarations matter. But in addition, I think there's two other pieces of this. First, we are asking them and to move with the urgency and declare demands, right? That when we're talking about the anti-violence budget, when we're talking about how we're approaching these situations, and we're talking about how we communicate with the public, that they are doing so as quickly as possible And moving towards addressing this crisis with that. And so some of the resources have already been designated by the city, but because they're not being quickly deployed in as effectively as possible, it means that we're going to have to wait even longer for them to have an impact on saving lives of Philadelphia. And then the third part is that, look, calling it an emergency, making a formal declaration could open up additional resources in the city to address this and tools and resources. They don't, they don't all have to be used, but giving that tool, those resources to city officials when gun violence spikes in a community, when crisis arises is an opportunity that we want everyone to have available so that every possible resource can be brought to bear on something that has fundamentally changed what it means to live here in Philadelphia.
5: That actually leads perfectly into my next question I want to dwell on this for a little bit because it's a big uh, topic of of contention. So last week the grant applications for the $22 million for anti violence community groups opened up, and there was a protest just days before that. um, You know folks demanding that this money be released immediately to the communities. Council member you were there right. So is this the response the group was looking for, or is there more
4: in response to a lot of the activism um, by uh anti-violence um activists the city has started to move faster um you know we we should have already been working on this i think a month about a month passed between the time when we passed the budget and when um we really started moving forward both with the rfp that was released um recently and with um, the monitoring group that will oversee you know, how that money is allocated. Um, But that being said, the pressure in the streets has absolutely made this process move um, more quickly than it might have otherwise. And so um, I think it's a good thing that we need that we're moving forward with the money. Um, I'm hopeful that you know, and, and, and I will be a part of making sure that money goes to the groups that are really doing the work and have the trust of our community members and the relationships necessary to bring down violence. But in addition to the money, um, we need to focus the city's operating departments on um, alleviating violence in our communities. So the grants are a fantastic thing and that gets us more um, community support that can really interrupt the violence that we're seeing. But in addition to that, we need the Parks and Rec Department Um, You know, focus on the neighborhoods experiencing violence and making sure that we have robust um, recreational assets and um, safe activities for young people. We need the Department of Behavioral Health to make sure that we're blanketing our neighborhoods with trauma support and services in a way that can help people to heal. We need our Commerce Department to be working to develop meaningful job opportunities for those most likely to shoot and be shot. The money is good, but we need the full weight of the city on tackling um, this problem right now. Now in New
5: York, as we know, a gun violence emergency has already been declared from the state level. So on the governor's official website, they outline a statement that says the disaster emergency allows the state to expedite money and resources to communities so they can begin targeting gun violence immediately. Now, again, I've heard from community members in Philly, they say they want and need resources and they want them ASAP, but under the city charter, the mayor's emergency powers don't include expediting funding in this way. So what will it take for community groups to actually get that money faster? I think people have to keep the pressure up.
4: The fact that that money even exists is because of the advocacy of a lot of people out in our neighborhoods and because um, council members banded together to demand it, but we should be clear that it wouldn't have happened without public pressure. In the same way, I think that people need to keep raising their voices on wanting to see a more urgent response and wanting to see that money hit the streets for the people and programs that, that need it immediately.
6: Yeah, I, I wanna pick up on this for a second, if that's okay. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, everything that's happened, I have to say, in the last six months around creating this anti-violence budget was driven by both a cohort of council demanding clear action with activists outside the building. And we're glad we got to this point, but I think that that pressure is really critical. Um, the money that's gonna flow from the anti-violence grant program, turning it around in a month, which is like it's a month until they're hoping to finish the grant program, and then soon after all the money, that's great. That's a pretty short turnaround for the city. It would have been better if it had started a month ago. The same is gonna be true for the rest of the city programs. So we're talking about a $20 million bucket of what they're calling a $155 million anti-violence budget. So they've outlaid everything from parks and recreation to healing services, to workforce development. And what we're now saying, I think is, Okay, so now tell us the transparency and the plans and how are you moving so quickly on those so we're deploying the city's full resources in a targeted way. And I think that's really important to talk about in a targeted strategic way that's going to address this violence, not just continuing to do what we've always done with such programs, which is great work. But if we're going to get this crisis under control, we're going to have to think strategically about how to apply that work.
4: And the thing that... um sometimes frustrates me about this is that this is not something that our city doesn't know how to do. We've seen our city develop an emergency response before. We've done it for COVID and we also did it for opioids. So some of the talk around, you know, that an emergency declaration wouldn't do anything is a little disingenuous Since we know how to craft an emergency response, we need to do that for gun violence because it is absolutely tearing our neighborhoods apart in this moment. And I also really see this as a a racial justice issue because so many of the people that are impacted are brown and black.
5: The mayor has said that uh, some legal questions need to be answered before an emergency can even be declared. Do we know what those questions are and have the conversation started yet? That is false, <laughs> that is false.
4: Um, I originally put forward um, the emergency, uh, the resolution asking for an emergency declaration in September of 2020. Um, I not only consulted the law department about our ability to, to do this, um, a whole year has passed. If there were legal questions that needed to be a- you know, answered, um, the mayor and his team had from September of 2020 to almost a full year later, now in August of 2021, to ask to answer, to get those questions answered. Um, so I I would push back on that being the reason um, that we haven't moved forward in this way. But but even still, um, I think, you know, even though I don't agree with the decision, if the mayor doesn't want to declare the emergency, um, I certainly can live with that. What I can't live with, and what my constituents can't live with is not having an emergency response. We can call it what we want. We need to have a response as a a city that matches the pace and the level of the violence that we're seeing.
5: And so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, semantics. (laughs) When you say emergency response, what do you mean? And Adam will say for you, when you say mayor declare emergency, what do you mean?
4: There are 14 um, zip codes in the city that are experiencing the most violence in this moment. And I think that all of the operating agencies of the city need to devote their resources and attention um, towards those zip codes. We should have an emergency response group that meets daily to coordinate, um, to set goals and to talk about the work that's happening. Um, Parks and Recreation has a role to make sure we have safe activities. The Department of Public Health has a role in making sure that people have trauma support. The Managing Director's Office has a role in hiring more credible messengers to go into our communities to mentor young people um, and to interrupt violence before it turns into um, shooting. Commerce got $5.6 million from council for the FY22 budget to set up meaningful job opportunities for those most at risk. That program needs to be developed immediately, and that would be their role. Every agency comes to the table focused on the 14 zip codes experiencing the most violence and measures its progress and its impact every single day. And we also need to have more transparency. So that emergency response group would report to the public and to council on a weekly basis. And again, this is not um, dissimilar to what we've seen in other emergencies like COVID and like opioids.
6: Well, it's hard to add to Councilmember Gautier's analysis there of what an emergency means. That's a, a pretty good summation of what we're looking for, too. I'd add a few key pieces. I think, one, the transparency is really critical. So research has shown again and again that when you're looking at community violence prevention programs, whether it's intervention, workforce development, youth mentoring, or trauma-informed care, that there's two key components. One is community level engagement, that those programs, even if they're designed perfectly, work significantly better when the community's involved in that effort. And that depends on transparency. And the second piece is that that transparency will make it really clear that we're not continuing business as usual. Because I think that's our big concern here, to be honest. When you look at the $155 million budget, some of that was restoration of existing funding. And our question is, what are the ways you're adjusting strategically those programs and turning them towards reducing violence? So if you're running a rec center program now, how are you attracting more youth who might be involved at risk um, for being involved with violence? And how are you providing support services to their larger network of family members so that you're getting them the trauma-informed care and support systems or the workforce opportunities that turn them away from the violence and keep them out of those problems? If you're taught so those things are really critical when we talk about the transparency and we hear from time to time it's happening behind the scenes but we know one its effectiveness depends upon that and two honestly if it was really happening today i think neither of us we'd rather like stop talking about emergency and get to doing the work but we continue to wait for action the other piece of this that i think is real is going to be really important is looking at those long-term goals so i'll give you two quick examples from the mayor's plan on this the first is the ready program which is part of that workforce development which is a proven model to pair workforce development with behavior cognitive therapy out of chicago it's not supposed to start till january of 2022. now those programs are hard to get started but it was conceived four or five months ago in fact and in the original plan so why aren't we rushing it out in two to three months at a smaller scale And then also it's only, you know, I think a few hundred people are going to be involved in it and be ready to scale it up to a thousand people. The other piece about the roadmap to safer communities is the goals at the end of the day are not scheduled, um, you know, are set out for two years from now at the end of the mayor's term. Where do we want to be in three months? Where do we want to be in six months in terms of reducing violence? The sad reality is that the waiting we've already had means it's gonna be really hard to turn this curve, right, downward, and I'm devastated by that. It's gonna be really hard to keep us to 500 deaths this year, right, shooting, you know? But we might be able to do it if we really focus on that goal. And then if we don't take that action now, we're gonna be locking in more shootings next year, and we're gonna have a 2022 that's just as bad. So that's where this urgency will, is really critical, and not only reducing shootings now, but helping us get ahead of it for the next year.
5: And Council Member, you've mentioned um, uh, other emergency declarations that have been declared. And I'm thinking about the heat this week and how a heat health emergency has been declared because it's going to be 95 plus degrees, right? So what would you say to people asking how many more lives have to be lost before there's a gun violence emergency declared?
4: I would say that they should keep raising their voices because we deserve this black and brown people in Philadelphia deserve to have safe neighborhoods where we can go to the park, we can visit a rec center, we can have our kids play outside, um, we can go to a 4th of July picnic um, or cookout rather without fear of getting shot down. And, you know, traditionally in our city, our response to gun violence has been um, enforcement. We've invested a lot in policing, in courts, in prosecution. Certainly those things are Part of um, how we alleviate gun violence. But we also deserve to have meaningful um, investment in prevention and intervention, the things that can stop people from picking up guns in the first place. And we deserve to have um, prevention and intervention treated just as seriously as we treat those other areas of enforcement.
5: And I want to end us with this uh, question. So, again, what I'm continuously hearing from the community is that. Uh, the gun violence crisis is not getting the response that it needs. So, I want to hear from both of your perspectives what is next?
4: I'm continuing to push on this issue every single day. I don't have a choice because so much of it is happening in the district that I represent. And so my push right now is, okay, we don't want to call it an emergency. That's just fine. But this is what an emergency response should look like. And I'm continuing to communicate and to meet with the mayor to help us shape a response that's more appropriate um, for the level of violence that we're seeing.
6: I think that's right. I mean, I think continue every time we pushed, we want we may not get everything we want, but it's the reason we got the $155 million. It's the reason we got the $20 million out. And so what's next in that? One, people have to keep pushing because there's 135 more million dollars that I wanna know how it's gonna be defined to reduce this crisis. And we're gonna start working to define exactly how those programs can work to help people understand how workforce development reduces violence and what are the contours of it, how parks and rec programs can do the same thing. So I think the public needs to understand and then continue to ask for that transparency. The other piece I wanna note here is we do just need more people to get involved in this effort. And look, the violence in the city of Philadelphia right now is bleeding the city to death. We lose family members, we lose friends, we lose community members, but the loss of the sense of safety has huge ramifications. And I really would like to see the rest of the community get involved. So much of Philadelphia depends on the business community, depends on the um, suburban community that comes in and they might be thinking about coming back now that we're getting hopefully past COVID, They're a little questionable these days. And all of those efforts, if you care about Philadelphia, if you love Philadelphia, like I think each of us do, then speak up because this is gonna define this city for years to come. And if we can get it under control, then we can have the city where we all love to live, work and play.
5: Adam and Councilmember Gattier, thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having us.
6: Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donorsone.org.
3: Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee. Our newsmaker of the week is an 11-year-old Philly native that started his own lemonade business when he was just 7 years old. Now, with the help of his mother, Danielle, he's on the way to becoming a national success. Here's KYW's Sheridan Howard.
7: The prevailing theory that youth drive trends, local and global, is being met head-on by Micah Harrigan, an 11-year-old entrepreneur who's got his mind set on success. And he says he hopes kids follow his lead, after he was one of several mini-moguls featured on Kelly Clarkson's daytime talk show, where he discussed his thriving lemonade brand that started out as a simple Southwest Philly lemonade stand, Micah's Mix. And while Harrigan points out that kids his age in cities across the country, especially Philly, are facing the fallout of gun violence, he attributes his mogul mindset to a desire to serve the community one bottle of lemonade at a time. Hello, Micah. Thanks for coming. Nice to see you again. So, Micah, you've decided at the ripe old age of 11 years old that you want to be a businessman. And not only just any businessman, you want to be a mogul.
2: I want to be like Jay-Z, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. There's a lot of rich business owners out there that I want to kind of be like. Not just because they're rich, but you have a compassionate side. That's what separates you from a lot of
7: those other moguls out there.
2: Mm -hmm. I want to help people all around the world. So the
7: ambition you had for being becoming rich was not just about getting more things and being rich it was about having more opportunities to help others and eureka the vehicle a lemonade stand so tell me about that Micah.
2: the day i woke up and said it was going to be a lemonade stand i was really excited i was like oh my gosh this is actually happening i'm actually going to be making my own money i started the business when i was eight well i thought of it when i was seven but it didn't come to work until i was eight
7: and when your mother said yes what was your next step
2: the first next step my mom immediately went on amazon and like ordered all the supplies and i was like wow this is this is actually happening it's like i'm one step closer to becoming an adult and danielle as micah's
7: mother you seem to be open to his ideas open to the possibilities to his imagination and how important is that as a mother to a black son
0: absolutely my parents did the same thing for me it was Whatever I wanted to do, you know, within reason, I was allowed to do. You get your kids to start them when they're young. And then, you know, their path will be, I feel like, better directed when they're older. Micah, he is very comfortable in his blackness. I am comfortable in it. Also, I teach him that to be proud of himself, proud of his hair, proud of his skin color, proud of everything that embodies African-Americans. When people see him and meet him, they really do see just an amazing human being. I mean, it, it clearly does matter that he's black, but to everyone, it's like, this is an amazing young man. And it's just really as simple as that. And I want him to be an amazing young man first and foremost, but then don't forget that you are an amazing black man also
7: this black boy lights up a room yeah
0: yeah he really does he really does and he's always been that way he gets along with everyone everyone gets along with him his friends are plentiful and very different his his, his friends are is an array of people and so i mean that that is the world right you know but he, but he's still gonna go to Morehouse.
7: <laughs> here comes the Morehouse man i see it i hear you and of course we know by now mother knows best right okay micah so now you have the green light your mother said yes what's next
2: So the business plan came. Next step was the recipe. We tried a bunch of different recipes and some were okay, some were not. Some were really good, but some were better. And then we decided to choose my grandma's recipe, which I'm not going to say. And then we used that recipe and it tasted the best out of all of them in our opinion. And turns out people really liked it.
7: And then your business started picking up. You gained momentum. What did you do with your money the very first time you could spend it on yourself?
2: When I bought my first thing with my own money. It was like a pack of gum and I got so excited. I'm like I am now Bill Gates. I am the richest person in the world. I just bought a pack of gum. Go me. So you decided on your lemonade stand, but you don't just sell lemonade. I do not just sell lemonade. I also sell iced tea. I now sell popsicles. We're trying to get into that. I sold a couple popsicles to my family members, but we don't really have them out yet, but we will eventually.
7: And in addition to adding new products, you're also getting a
2: bus. Mm Mm-hmm. I think today we're actually supposed to pick up the bus. We just got to paint it and then it should be good to go. So the plan with the bus is to drive around maybe on certain days where school isn't much of a problem. Maybe on like some weekends or maybe on like if we have like three or more days off of school, then I could probably drive around on the bus. I said I wanted to, like, explore to other areas. You might be able to go cross-country and just go, like, to New Jersey. So, really, it's
7: not just about talking to people, making money. It's about the adventure of it.
2: Like, sometimes I imagine how it would be if I'm just, like, sitting in the back of the bus on, like, a highway or something and just looking out the window. I think that would be amazing to experience. Recently,
7: you were on The Kelly Clarkson Show, a real newsmaker. She was interested in not only your business prowess, but the way you see the world. Tell me about your experience on that TV show.
2: It was exciting. We recorded Kelly in March, and it didn't come out until this month. Kelly is like, hey, the show's coming out tomorrow. You, you can watch. Kelly was interesting. I know that hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe millions even, I don't know how many people watch Kelly Clarkson in a day, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure it was a lot. The video did, I think a clip of it got uploaded on YouTube of me, and I was excited. I could barely figure out what to speak. Even though we'd spent, like, six hours rehearsing, I could barely just speak. I'm like, oh, my God, I actually did it. I'm on Kelly Clarkson herself. So like, she is talking to me directly. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my
7: gosh. So, in that moment, what was it like to have all of the shine on you? How was that?
2: Mm-hmm. It felt great. It already felt like I was a celebrity when... I was nowhere near yet. Being in the spotlight is just amazing. It makes you feel like a celebrity when you aren't, like when everyone's just looking at you when you do something. It just feels amazing. Being a celebrity allows you to then share your gifts and to share your blessings with others. Mm Mm-hmm. I like to spread kindness or love onto other people. If someone's down, then I'm the person that picks them up, pretty much. I like to do that. It makes me feel good inside. You can basically say I do it for self-enjoyment. It just makes me feel good to be kind. I know you want to take it up a notch, because that's just what you do. Mm Mm-hmm. The next level is the bus, and there's a lot more to come, like factory producement. I made a promise to myself that I'm never going to make it artificially made. Because I want people to keep their life expectancy, so...
7: And all those chemicals, it's a no-go. those
2: chemicals and stuff. So I was like, you know what? I'm I'm going to buy, like, a lemon orchard.
7: Now, Micah, you've been in the news. You've been on daytime television. And you've got clout now with kids.
2: So fast forward 15 years. What's your 15-year plan? So when I'm 26, I'm pretty sure I'd already have, like, a couple stores, maybe a little franchise and probably a little bit of factory. we would have, like, a little HQ for Micah's mix. I might call it MXHQ because... <laughs> A nickname that most of my friends call me for Micah's Mix is MX, and it makes me sound cool, so I might do, like, (laughs) MXHQ. So,
7: Micah, how do you know when you made it? What does success mean to you?
2: Success means the act of just making it to the top. You're one of the big leagues now in the entire world. Everyone loves you. Some people hate you, but you ignore them. People are going to hate. People are going to love. And mostly you have to look forward to the people who love you.
7: Okay, we're going to wind down now. I just need to know. What's that one rap that you love so much that really, truly speaks to you and who you are and your moves in the world? Because you're making moves.
2: I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. <laughs> that's like the only line of the song that I know. Well, that's where the magic is, man.
7: Thank you so much, Micah, for sharing your story with us today.
2: No problem. It's honored to be here.
6: If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org.
2: The Philly Rising Change Maker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care.
3: Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee, and every week we like to highlight someone who's making a difference in our communities. This week's changemaker is Ron Curtis. He's the owner of Final Touch Barber Academy at 9th and Spring Garden. The school is a dream come true for him and for the many others that he teaches. For Ron Curtis, cutting hair was a way out of trouble and a pathway to opportunities. When Curtis was serving a four-year sentence behind bars, he imagined
1: turning his life around. I, mean, I was just basically saying, how can I just change my life and not go back to jail ever again in my life? So I became the barber and I just started cutting hair and teaching people how to cut hair in there. And um, I just told myself, when I get out of here, you know, I'm going to change my life around. And he
3: did just that. And now he's helping other young people keep their lives on track through the craft of cutting hair.
1: It's a lot of crazy stuff going on here in this world um so when you look at people trying to cut hair and you you know you want to become barbers you give them your all but there's a lot you know what i mean you gotta keep this guy off the street you gotta tell him right from wrong you gotta let them know your past you gotta let them know that there's a brighter future out here for these kids and um people in in, in this industry just not here anywhere you know what i mean barbers are leaders and, and they are a pillar of the community and they have to continue to teach these young men how to be grown men about something.
3: 23-year-old Julian Starcia from Southwest Philly has been a student at the academy for seven months.
0: Here and having teachers that's just like pushing me to do right, you know, definitely made me better. The school in general, uh, the school was something I needed. I work and go to school. I work during the day and I go to school at night, and that's a lot. At the end of the day, I'm glad I was here because I'm not in the street. Another day that God gave me to continue to be on this path and to continue my quest, you know, to success.
3: Duan Allen from Germantown has also been learning for seven months. He says the work gives him an outlet for creativity and a sense of pride and purpose.
1: To me, it's, uh, it's like art. I like art. So it's like when you're in a barbershop, it's like you basically putting a new style on a client and make them happy and stuff like that. So
3: And Curtis says that's exactly what his mission is, to help as many young people as he can, keeping them off the streets and empowering their lives through barbary.
1: We got 20-year-old kids in here right now, and they, you know what they say? They don't want to get out there and die. You know, every time you look at them and they're getting better and better, um, they're here every day. Um, they want to save their life, you know, from what's going on out here. When I look at them and I see how far they have, you know, become and seeing what they're doing, and, you know, it just makes you so happy, man, because you see these young kids that that want it.
3: You can find out more about Final Touch Barber Academy on their website, finaltouchbarberacademy.com. They're also on Instagram. As always, if you know a change maker we should highlight next, let us know. You can tweet me at A-R-Lee on air. Again, that's A-R-L-E-E on air. That's it for this week's Flashpoint. I want to end us with this quote. The work of today is the history of tomorrow, and we are its makers. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher, Sheridan Howard, and me, your host, Antoinette Lee. Until next time, thank you for listening.
2: Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 103.9 FM. For more, go to kywnewsradio.com/flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.